Section twenty of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three, by James Boswell, Section twenty. On Saturday, September the thirtieth, after breakfast, when Taylor was gone out to his farm. Dr. Johnson and I had a serious conversation by ourselves on melancholy and madness, which he was, I always thought, erroneously inclined to confound together. Melancholy, like great wit, may be near allied to madness, but there is, in my opinion, a distinct separation between them. Footnote great wits are sure to madness near allied and thin partitions do their bounds divide dryden's absalom and achitophel End of footnote. when he talked of madness he was to be understood as speaking of those who were in any great degree disturbed or as it is commonly expressed troubled in mind some of the ancient philosophers held that all deviations from right reasons were madness and whoever wishes to see the opinions both of ancient and moderns upon this subject collected and illustrated with a variety of curious facts may read dr arnold's very entertaining work johnson said a madman loves to be with people whom he fears not as a dog fears the lash but of whom he stands in awe i was struck with the justice of this observation to be with those of whom a person whose mind is wavering and dejected stands in awe represses and composes an uneasy tumult of spirits and consoles him with the contemplation of something steady and at least comparatively great he added madmen are all sensual in the lower stages of the distemper they are eager for gratifications to soothe their minds and divert their attention from the misery which they suffer but when they grow very ill pleasure is too weak for them and they seek for pain footnote we read in the Gospels that those unfortunate persons who were possessed with evil spirits, which, after all, I think is the most probable cause of madness, as was first suggested to me by my respectable friend Sir John Pringle, had recourse to pain, tearing themselves, and jumping sometimes into the fire, sometimes into the water. Mr. Seward, has furnished me with a remarkable anecdote in confirmation of Dr. Johnson's observation. A tradesman, who had acquired a large fortune in London, retired from business and went to live at Worcester. His mind, being without its usual occupation, and having nothing else to supply its place, preyed upon itself so that existence was a torment to him. At last he was seized with the stone, and a friend who found him in one of its severest fits, having expressed his concern. No, no, sir, said he, don't pity me. 
what i now feel is ease compared with that torture of mind from which it relieves me boswell end of footnote employment sir and hardships prevent melancholy i suppose in all our army in america there was not one man who went mad we entered seriously upon a question of how much importance to me which johnson was pleased to consider with friendly attention i had long complained to him that i felt myself discontented in scotland as to narrow a sphere and that i wished to make my chief residence in london the great scene of ambition instruction and amusement a scene which was to me comparatively speaking a heaven upon earth johnson why sir i never knew any one who had such a gust for london as you have and i cannot blame you for your wish to live there yet sir were i in your father's place i should not consent to your settling there for i have the old feudal notions and i should be afraid that auchinleck would be deserted as you would soon find it more desirable to have a country seat in a better climate i own however that to consider it as a duty to reside on a family estate is a prejudice for we must consider that working people get employment equally and the produce of land is sold equally whether a great family resides at home or not and if the rents of an estate be carried to london they return again in the circulation of commerce nay sir we must perhaps allow that carrying the rents to a distance is a good because it contributes to that circulation we must however allow that a well-regulated great family may improve a neighbourhood in civility and elegance and give an example of good order virtue and piety and so its residence at home may be of much advantage but if a great family be disorderly and vicious its residence at home is very pernicious to a neighbourhood there is now not the same inducement to live in the country as formerly the pleasures of social life are much better enjoyed in town and there is no longer in the country that power and influence in proprietors of land which they had in old times and which made the country so agreeable to them the laird of auchinleck now is not near so great a man as the laird of auchinleck was a hundred years ago i told him that my ancestors never went from home without being attended by thirty men on horseback johnson's shrewdness and spirit of inquiry were exerted upon every occasion pray said he how did your ancestor support his thirty men and thirty horses when he went at a distance from home in an age where there was hardly any money in circulation i suggested the same difficulty to a friend who mentioned douglas's going to the holy land with a numerous train of followers douglas could no doubt maintain followers enough while living upon his own lands the produce of which supplied them with food but he could not carry that food to the holy land and as there was no commerce by which he could be supplied with money 
how could he maintain them in foreign countries? I suggested a doubt that if I were to reside in London, the exquisite zest with which I relished it on occasional visits might go off, and I might grow tired of it. Johnson. Why, sir, you find no man at all intellectual who is willing to leave London. No, sir, when a man is tired of London, he is tired of life, for there is in London all that life can afford. Footnote. Reynolds, writes Malone, was as fond of London as Dr. Johnson, always maintaining that it was the only place in England where a pleasant society might be found. Gibbon wrote to Holroyd, Never pretend to allure me by painting in odious colours the dust of London. I love the dust, and whenever I move into the Weald, it is to visit you and my lady, and not your trees. Burke, on the other hand, wrote, What is London? Clean, commodious, neat, but a very few things indeed excepted, and endless addition of littleness to littleness extending itself over a great tract of land. For a young man, he says, for a young man of easy fortune, London is the best place one can imagine, but for the old, the infirm, the straitened in fortune, the grave in character or in disposition, I do not believe a much worse place can be found. End of footnote. To obviate his apprehension that by settling in London I might desert the seat of my ancestors, I assured him that I had old feudal principles to a degree of enthusiasm, and that I felt all the dulcedo of the natal solum. Footnote. Nesio qua natal solum dulcedine captos, ducit et immemores non sinit esse sui. Ovid, episode ex ponto. End of footnote. I reminded him that the Laird of Auchinleck had an elegant house in front of which he could ride ten miles forward upon his own territories, upon which he had upwards of six hundred people attached to him, that the family seat was rich in natural romantic beauties of rock, wood, and water, and that in my morn of life I had appropriated the finest descriptions in the ancient classics to certain scenes there which were thus associated in my mind that when all this was considered i should certainly pass a part of the year at home and enjoy it the more from variety and from bringing with me a share of the intellectual stores of the metropolis he listened to all this and kindly hoped it might be as i now supposed he said a country gentleman should bring his lady to visit London as soon as he can, that they may have agreeable topics for conversation when they are by themselves. As I meditated trying my fortune in Westminster Hall, our conversation turned upon the profession of the law in England. Johnson, you must not indulge to sanguine hopes, should you be called to our bar. 
i was told by a very sensible lawyer that there are a great many chances against any man's success in the profession of the law the candidates are so numerous and those who get large practice so few he said it was by no means true that a man of good parts and application is sure of having business though he indeed allowed that if such a man could but appear in a few causes his merit would be known and he would get forward but that the great risk was that a man might pass half a lifetime in the courts and never have an opportunity of showing his abilities footnote now at the distance of fifteen years since this conversation passed the observation which i have had the opportunity of making in westminster hall has convinced me that however true the opinion of dr johnson's legal friend may have been some time ago the same certainty of success cannot now be promised to the same display of merit the reasons however of the rapid rise of some and the disappointment of others equally respectable are such as it might seem invidious to mention and would require a longer detail than would be proper for this work boswell boswell began to eat his dinners at the inner temple in seventeen seventy five in writing to temple he thus mentions his career as a barrister january the tenth seventeen eighty nine in truth i am sadly discouraged by having no practice nor probable prospect of it and to confess fairly to you my friend i am afraid that were i to be tried i should be found so deficient in the forms the quirks and the quidites which early habit acquires that i should expose myself yet the delusion of westminster hall of brilliant reputation and splendid fortune as a barrister still weighs upon my imagination august the twenty third seventeen eighty nine the law life in scotland amongst vulgar familiarity would now quite destroy me i am not able to acquire the law of england november the twenty eighth seventeen eighty nine i have given up my house and taken good chambers in the inner temple to have the appearance of a lawyer o temple temple is this realizing any of the towering hopes which have so often been the subject of our conversations and letters i do not see the smallest opening in westminster hall but i like the scene though i have attended only one day this last term being eager to get my life of johnson finished april the sixth seventeen ninety one when my book is launched i shall if i am alone and in tolerable health and spirits have some furniture put into my chambers in the temple and force myself to sit there some hours a day and to attend regularly in westminster hall the chambers cost me twenty pounds yearly and i may reckon furniture and a lad to attend there occasionally twenty pounds more i doubt whether i shall get fees equal to the expense november the twenty second seventeen ninety one i keep chambers open in the temple i attend in westminster hall 
but there is not the least prospect of my having business. His chambers, as he wrote to Malone, were in the very staircase where Johnson lived. End of footnote. We talked of employment being absolutely necessary to preserve the mind from wearying and growing fretful, especially in those who have a tendency to melancholy, and I mentioned to him a saying which somebody had related of an American savage, who, when an European was expatiating on all the advantages of money, put this question, Will it purchase occupation? Johnson, Depend upon it, sir, this saying is too refined for a savage, and, sir, money will purchase occupation. It will purchase all the conveniences of life. It will purchase variety of company. It will purchase all sorts of entertainment. I talked to him of Foster's voyage to the South Seas, which pleased me, but I found he did not like it. Sir, said he, there is a great affectation of fine writing in it. Boswell but he carries you along with him. Johnson. No, sir, he does not carry me along with him. He leaves me behind him, or rather, indeed, he sets me before him, for he makes me turn over many leaves at a time. On Sunday, September the 12th, we went to the church of Ashbourne, which is one of the largest and most luminous that I have seen in any town of the same size. I felt great satisfaction in considering that I was supported in my fondness for solemn public worship by the general concurrence and munificence of mankind. Johnson and Taylor were so different from each other that I wondered at their preserving an intimacy. Their having been at school and college together might in some degree account for this. Footnote. In Notes and Queries for April, May, and June, 1882, is a series of Johnson's letters to Taylor between June the 10th, 1742, and April the 12th, 1784. In the first, Johnson signs himself, You're very affectionate. On November the 18th, 1756, he writes, Neither of us can now find many whom he has known so long as we have known each other. We both stand almost single in the world. On July 15th, 1765, he reproaches Taylor with not writing. With all your building and feasting, you might have found an hour in some wet day for the remembrance of your old friend. I should have thought that since you have led a life so festive and gay, you would have invited me to partake of your hospitality. On October the 19th, 1779, he says, Write to me soon, we are both old. How few of those whom we have known in our youth are left alive. On April the 12th, 1784, he writes, Let us be kind to one another. I have no friend now living but you and Mr. Hector that was the friend of my youth. See page 131 for his regret on the death of his schoolfellow, Henry Jackson, 
who seemed to Boswell to be a low man, dull and untaught. One of the man's miseries, he wrote, is that he cannot easily find a companion able to partake with him of the past. I have none to call me Charlie now, wrote Charles Lamb on the death of a friend of his boyhood. Such a companion Johnson found in Taylor, that on the death of his wife he at once sent for him, not even waiting for the light of morning to come, is a proof that he had a strong affection for the man. End of footnote. But Sir Joshua Reynolds has furnished me with a stronger reason, for Johnson mentioned to him that he had been told by Taylor he was to be his heir. I shall not take upon me to animadvert upon this, but certain it is that Johnson paid great attention to Taylor. He now, however, said to me, Sir, I love him, but I do not love him more. My regard for him does not increase. As it is said in the Apocrypha, his talk is of bullocks. Footnote. The whole chapter may be read as an admirable illustration of the superiority of cultivated minds over the gross and illiterate. Boswell. End of footnote. I do not suppose he is very fond of my company. Footnote. Passages in Johnson's letters to Mrs. Thrale are to the same effect. August the 3rd, 1771. Having stayed my month with Taylor, I came away on Wednesday, leaving him, I think, in a disposition of mind not very uncommon, at once weary of my stay and grieved at my departure. July the 13th, 1775. Dr. Taylor and I spent little time together, yet he will not be persuaded to hear of parting. July the 26th, 1775. Having stayed long enough at Ashbourne, I was not sorry to leave it. I hindered some of Taylor's diversions, and he supplied me with very little. End of footnote. His habits are by no means sufficiently clerical. This he knows that I see, and no man likes to live under the eye of perpetual disapprobation. I have no doubt that a good many sermons were composed for Taylor by Johnson. At this time I found upon his table a part of one which he had newly begun to write, and Concio Pro Taylorow appears in one of his diaries. When to these circumstances we add the internal evidence from the power of thinking and style in the collection which the Reverend Mr. Hayes has published, with the significant title of Sermons Left for Publication by the Reverend John Taylor, LLD, our conviction will be complete. I, however, would not have it thought that Dr. Taylor, though he could not write like Johnson, as indeed who could, did not sometimes compose sermons as good as those which we generally have from very respectable divines. He showed me one with notes on the margin in Johnson's handwriting, and I was present when he read another to Johnson, that he might have his opinion of it, and Johnson said it was very well. These, we may be sure, were not Johnson's, for he was above little arts or tricks of deception. 
Johnson was by no means of opinion that every man of a learned profession should consider it as incumbent upon him, or as necessary to his credit, to appear as an author, when in the ardour of ambition for literary fame I regretted to him one day that an eminent judge had nothing of it, and therefore would leave no perpetual monument of himself to posterity. Footnote. If the eminent judge was Lord Mansfield, we may compare with Boswell's regret the lines in which Pope laments the influence of Westminster Hall and Parliament. Their truant Wyndham every muse gave o'er, their Talbot sunk and was a wit no more. How sweet an Ovid Murray was our boast, how many marshals were in Pulteney lost. End of footnote. Alas, sir, said Johnson, what a mass of confusion should we have if every bishop and every judge, every lawyer, physician, and divine were to write books. I mentioned to Johnson a respectable person of a very strong mind, who had little of that tenderness which is common to human nature, as an instance of which, when I suggested to him that he should invite his son, who had been settled ten years in foreign parts, to come home and pay him a visit. His answer was, No, no, let him mind his own business. Footnote. Boswell's brother David had been settled in Spain since 1768. He therefore is no doubt the son and Lord Auchinleck the father. End of footnote. Johnson, I do not agree with him, sir, in this. Getting money is not all a man's business. To cultivate kindness is a valuable part of the business of life. In the evening, Johnson, being in very good spirits, entertained us with several characteristical portraits. I regret that any of them escaped my retention and diligence. I found from experience that to collect my friend's conversation so as to exhibit it with any degree of its original flavour, it was necessary to write it down without delay. To record his sayings after some distance of time was like preserving or pickling long-kept and faded fruits or other vegetables, which when in that state have little or nothing of their taste when fresh. I shall present my readers with a series of what I gathered this evening from the Johnsonian garden. My friend, the late Earl of Cork, had a great desire to maintain the literary character of his family. He was a genteel man, but did not keep up the dignity of his rank. He was so generally civil that nobody thanked him for it. Did we not hear so much said of Jack Wilkes, we should think more highly of his conversation? Jack has great variety of talk, Jack is a scholar, and Jack has the manners of a gentleman. Footnote. Jack had not shown all his manners to Johnson. Gibbon thus describes him in 1762. Colonel Wilkes of the Buckinghamshire Militia dined with us. I scarcely ever met with a better companion. He has inexhaustible spirits, infinite wit and humour, 
and a great deal of knowledge, but a thorough profligate, in principle as in practice, his life stained with every vice, and his conversation full of blasphemy and indecency. These morals he glories in, for shame is a weakness he has long since surmounted. The following anecdote in Boswelliana is not given in the life of Johnson. Johnson had a sovereign contempt for Wilkes and his party, whom he looked upon as a mere rabble. Sir, said he, had Wilkes's mob prevailed against government, this nation had died of phthiriasis. Mr. Langton told me this, the expression morbus pediculosus, as being better known, would strike more. End of footnote. But after hearing his name sounded from pole to pole, as the phoenix of convivial felicity, we are disappointed in his company. He has always been at me, but I would do Jack a kindness, rather than not. The contest is now over. Garrick's gaiety of conversation has delicacy and elegance. Foot makes you laugh more, but foot has the air of a buffoon paid for entertaining the company. He, indeed, well deserves his hire. Colley Sibber once consulted me as to one of his birthday odes, a long time before it was wanted. I objected very freely to several passages. Sibber lost patience and would not read his ode to an end. When we had done with criticism, we walked over to Richardson's, the author of Clarissa, and I wondered to find Richardson displeased that I did not treat Sibber with more respect. Now, sir, to talk of respect for a player, smiling disdainfully, Boswell. There, sir, you are always heretical. You will never allow merit to a player. Johnson. Merit, sir, what merit? Do you respect a rope-dancer or a ballad-singer? Boswell. No, sir, but we respect a great player as a man who can conceive lofty sentiments and can express them gracefully. Johnson. What, sir, a fellow who claps a hump on his back and a lump on his leg and cries, I am Richard the Third? Nay, sir, a ballad-singer is a higher man, for he does two things. He repeats and he sings. There is both recitation and music in his performance. The player only recites. Boswell. My dear sir, you may turn anything into ridicule. I allow that a player of farce is not entitled to respect. He does a little thing. But he who can represent exalted characters and touch the noblest passions, has very respectable powers, and mankind have agreed in admiring great talents for the stage. We must consider, too, that a great player does what very few are capable to do. His art is a very rare faculty. Who can repeat Hamlet's soliloquy, to be or not to be, as Garrick does it? Johnson Anybody may. Jemmy there, a boy about eight years old who was in the room, 
will do it as well in a week. Boswell. No, no, sir, and as a proof of the merit of great acting, and of the value which mankind set upon it, Garrick has got a hundred thousand pounds. Johnson. Is getting a hundred thousand pounds a proof of excellent? That has been done by a scoundrel commissary. Footnote. Hannah Moore says that she once asked Garrick why Johnson was so often harsh and unkind in his speeches both of him and to him. Why, he replied, It is very natural. Is it not to be expected he should be angry that I, who have so much less merit than he, should have had so much greater success? End of footnote. This was most fallacious reasoning. I was sure for once that I had the best side of the argument. I boldly maintained the just distinction between a tragedian and a mere theatrical droll, between those who rouse our terror and pity, and those who only make us laugh. If, said I, Betterton and Foote were to walk into this room, you would respect Betterton much more than Foote. Johnson if Betterton were to walk into this room with Foot, Foot would soon drive him out of it. Foot, sir, Quatainus Foot, has powers superior to them all. Footnote. Foot died a month after this conversation. Johnson wrote to Mrs. Thrale, Did you see Foot at Brighthelmsholm? Did you think he would so soon be gone? Life, says Falstaff, is a shuttle. Merry Wives of Windsor, Act 5, Scene 1. He was a fine fellow in his way, and the world is really impoverished by his sinking glories. Murphy ought to write his life, at least to give the world a footiana. Now will any of his contemporaries bewail him? Will genius change his sex to weep? I would really have his life written with diligence. This letter is wrongly dated October the 3rd, 1777. It was written early in November. Baretti, in a marginal note on Footiana, says, One half of it had been a string of obscenities. End of footnote. End of section 20.